Welcome to the Nourished and Nurturing Podcast, for two holistic-minded moms with a passion for real food and raising healthy, empowered children. We want to provide a safe and educational, judgment-free zone for supporting women as they journey into motherhood and discover the mom they were meant to be. I'm Marissa of Confidently Balanced. I'm a former speech-language pathologist turned nutritional therapy practitioner and have a passion for all things health, wellness, and mindset. I'm also a mama to a little guy with a big personality. And I'm Michelle. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner student. I have a degree in Thai massage and a master's in business analytics. I'm a mama to a little one and have another one on the way. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical concern. Hi, everyone. Today, I am so excited to interview Meg Reburn. Meg hangs her hat in beautiful Whistler, British Columbia, Canada. She's a registered midwife, educator, women's wellness coach, writer, and formal faculty member at Mount Royal University. Meg has a Bachelor of Health Science with honors in midwifery and has a special interest in both functional nutrition and women's hormone balance. Meg has spent the last 12 years attending births as a midwife and midwifery professor, and also more recently works with women as a virtual midwife and wellness coach. She likes to call her style of practice an evolutionary approach, believing that the body has innate wisdom to care for and balance itself given the proper nutrition, support, and care. Over the past year and a half, Meg has been practicing what she preaches and has taken off from full-time practice to gestate her own little human. When not gestating or working, she spends her time adventuring around the world and generally frolicking in the mountains, lakes, and oceans. It's her jam to help women find their healthy balance so that they get to feel great and do more of what makes them feel their very best. Hi, Meg. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am awesome. I'm so excited to talk to you. Yeah, me too. Yeah, we get to talk about a lot of pregnancy stuff. And we have both been pregnant pretty recently. But I'll ask you, does it feel like forever ago? (laughs) It does. It does feel like forever ago. There's been so many things that have happened in the world that uh, it makes it easy to forget. Yeah, that's true. Even just all the baby stuff, though. You're like, really? Was there a time that this baby wasn't around? I don't know. Yeah, totally. (laughs) But yeah, there's, I'm excited to dive into this. Um, You're obviously an expert in all things, all things pregnancy and babies and birth. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about your background, like midwifery and how you became more interested in nutrition and all that? Yeah, for sure. It's it's funny. I was just talking to someone about this the other day and I realized that from the time I was six, I didn't play Barbies in the normal way. My Barbie was actually delivering babies in her magic caravan. That is and I too thought, cute. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess I've been into this for a while. Um, but yeah, I started in my magic caravan with my Barbies. No, I, um, yeah. <laughs> I got into the birth world. I was actually quite young. I was 20. Um, and now as we were just talking before we recorded here, I'm 40. So it's been 20 years um, as a birth doula. I was so interested and actually I was planning to be an OBGYN that I thought, oh, you know, I'm just going to attend some births and make sure that I'm really into it before I really commit my life to this. And the first few births that I attended were actually midwife births. Um, And this is before midwifery in Canada was regulated. So 
um, they were all really beautiful home births. And I just saw a different way of being, you know, as a pre pre-med student, I saw one thing in the hospitals and in the school and then the classroom. And then, you know, on my other side as a doula, I saw this other world and I thought, you know, that other world is a little bit more for me. Um, but because midwifery wasn't regulated yet, uh, you know, I really wanted to to wait for regulation to happen because it was kind of just starting. So I, I waited for a while um, and I became a midwife about 10 years later. So I was attending births as a doula just kind of casually um, in those first 10 years. And then uh, since then, I've been a registered midwife um, practicing all across Canada. Um, and uh, except for the last, you know, few years when I've been gestating my own human. Mm. <laughs> I've taken some time off to do that, <laughs> but I've been working full time since then. And um, just, I'm guessing a bunch of your listeners are probably in the United States. And so uh, midwifery in Canada is a bit different than it is in the U.S. Here we, um, we can work kind of seamlessly between hospitals and home. Um, and we do have a couple of birth centers in Canada too. So women can choose to deliver wherever they like. And, you know, should the need arise, uh, if they're at home, if they need to transfer into hospital, we follow them in and continue their care as their primary care providers in the hospital or wherever it's safest for them to deliver or wherever they choose to deliver. Um, yeah, I think that is such a nice option because um, you and I were working together during, well, both my pregnancies, but my first one when I switched from hospital care to home birth care in the middle of my pregnancy. And I remember you saying that like, oh, that's too bad. You have to sever all of your relationships, start from mm-hmm. scratch. And then when we had the, like, we're going through what happens if we have to transfer to the hospital, it was like, oh, you have to go to this hospital that's much further away because they'll actually let my midwife in the room. Otherwise they kind of just don't consider them medical professionals even so yeah it's such a shame it really is and I it it's it's hard for women to choose and I I know many women who just have like kind of relationships with both a physician and a midwife and then they just see how it goes and it's it's too bad that it can't it can't be the way it is in Canada I know um, we're a bit of a unique system I think Australia and New Zealand have a similar system um but yeah, it's, it's, it's really too bad. And it's, it's nice for women to be able to choose where they're most comfortable giving birth and, and it can change throughout your pregnancy. You know, all of a sudden you have a breech baby and your midwife doesn't deliver breaches at home or you're not comfortable having a breach at home and you have to go to the hospital. It's like, okay, well now you have a provider you've never met and in a situation that you weren't planning on. So, you know, you don't have the opportunity to build a trust relationship with that provider too, which that's hard. Yeah. And I was even worried potentially about judgment from the hospital if I had to get transferred. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that is really nice that it's kind of this whole, like whole birth care, no matter what the outcome. Exactly. And we're, we're really well integrated into the medical system or we've become more well integrated. It took a while. Um, just, you know, as a new practitioner, all of a sudden showing up at the hospital, um, they're kind of like, who are these midwives? But over the last 20 years, they've been really um, great. And now we, we fit well into the system, which is wonderful. wonderful. But, um, so I do that. And then I also do a little bit of work, um, with women around nutrition and wellness and just, you know, hormone balance and fertility, mostly because in our education system, as you know, same with the physicians, we're just not educated a lot in it. And 
when I was in clinical practice, I just saw this huge gap. And, it, and it's such a, an important thing that can make such a big difference for, for women and their babies that I just thought, like, I just have to educate myself a little bit more. Um, so I took a bunch more courses and I did a lot more research and I just became a lot more involved with it. And um, so I help women kind of on the side with, with things like that. That's wonderful. And then, yeah, we've, we've talked about, and we'll get more into this later, but your program that you've been working on that kind of Mm -hmm. supports all the phases, like taking you from fertility to pregnancy, to birth, to postpartum, and um, like just going along with all the different needs you have. It's, it's a very, uh, yeah, you need so many nutrients and just a lot of, a lot of quality quality food and nutrition and there's different needs with different issues that come up. So there really are. And and the research around it is changing so much. It's part of why it's been taking so long for us to do it. Plus we've all been, we've been pregnant and having babies. <laughs> that does <laughs> get in the way. <laughs> it gets a little bit in the way and we, we do prioritize like our families first, which, uh, you know, I think, um, there's this pressure as female entrepreneurs to sometimes, you know, push through and put your business first, but we've really made our families a priority. And, um, and you know, I have no regrets about that. Yeah. Oh, and she's so cute. You only get one. (laughs) She is so cute. I I think so. (laughs) And Liz's little people are, uh, our little person and a half are pretty cute too. Oh, well, yeah. Well, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like how does, during the course of a pregnancy, how does your nutrient needs change or your need for different foods? Yeah. I mean, so the most important thing I would say is actually what comes before pregnancy. So if you're a woman, your childbearing years, and you are um, thinking about having children, thinking about your diet is before you're pregnant is like way more important than what you do when you're pregnant, I think. Um, Because when you're pregnant, sometimes you can become nauseous and, you know, you just can't eat certain things or the the most ideal things. So building up your nutrient stores before you're pregnant is kind of key. Um, Most important vitamins to build up are the fat-soluble vitamins, right? Because those are the ones that um, our bodies have a high demand for in pregnancy. And oftentimes, um, we're just depleted just because we're not eating enough of it in our day-to-day kind of Western diet. So we really encourage women to get lots of of vitamin A in their diet, um, lots of vitamin E in their diet. And then D, of course, is a really, really big one, which a lot of women are deficient in. So that's one of the ones I do recommend women become tested for and kind of supplement around around that testing. B vitamins are, you know, they kind of come into your system and then they go out, you pee them out, so they're water soluble. So those are things that can, you know, you, you can increase once you become pregnant. Definitely in the first trimester, vitamin B6 can be really important um, to help stave off nausea. Oftentimes if women are a little deficient in B6, that's when morning sickness can get really bad. Um, and B6 is often something that we recommend women supplement with if they're experiencing nausea in the first trimester just to, to fix it. Um, in Canada, we have this drug called diclectin, um, which in different countries, it has different names. But diclectin, you know, we always think of it as a drug, but actually all it is is vitamin B6 um, and then over-the-counter unisom. So mm. in, a, in an extended release tablet. So, um, I mean, that's how effective it is. You know, it's given 
by prescription from physicians across. And it's marketed for nausea. It's marketed for nausea. And you know, it really does work like a hot damn. (laughs) It it does the trick. I took it when I was pregnant. I had terrible nausea the whole way through um, and took it most of the time. And it really, you know, if I wasn't on it, I really noticed a difference. Um, And I had a lot of B6 in my diet, but for some reason, my body just needed more. And, and it just is what it is. Um, but yeah, B6 is important. Um, I'll back up to vitamin D. D is important for a lot of reasons, but D is a hormone. And um, when your body's making all these extra hormones, it really needs the support of vitamin D to do that. So um, getting extra vitamin D, usually by supplementation, is the way to, to, to do that through a quality prenatal vitamin um, is one of the big ones. Yeah, I think that's sure. a really good point because the the fat soluble vitamins do take longer to build up. Um, they really do. So yeah, it could and be months and your the prenatal might not have enough to, if you're deficient to bring you up, it's probably enough to maintain depending on what you're taking, but. Exactly. And the prenatal is marketed around women who are pregnant. So, and you want to be careful about taking too much of a fat soluble vitamin when you're pregnant, because they can have effects on the developing baby too, right? Vitamin A is one of the classic ones where we know at really high doses, it can, um, it can be a teratogen. So it can affect baby's development. Um, there are prenatals out there that have, um, vitamin A retinol, which is the really well-absorbed and well-utilized vitamin A that we get in, um, things like liver and, um, animal sources, but you want to be careful about taking too much of that when you're pregnant. Um, so getting, you know, getting in your liver and getting, doing a prenatal before you become pregnant is going to be enough to bring up your levels and then maybe cutting out the liver and just enjoying a a good quality prenatal when you're, when you're pregnant is going to maintain those levels nicely for you. I love that. Um, what about blood tests that you should get? Should you be starting these before you're pregnant to see where some of those levels are at? If you have the luxury of uh, foresight, <laughs> foresight, yeah, <laughs> yeah, not everyone has that. Yes, <laughs> not everyone has that. Um, if you have the, that luxury, then I think that's a great idea. You know, when you start thinking about becoming pregnant, getting um, getting some blood work is kind of key. Um, the really big ones that are going to affect fertility and um, you know, early pregnancy, like we're talking, you know, the first few weeks of pregnancy, one would be vitamin D, like we talked about. So seeing what your levels of vitamin D are doing. Another would be thyroid testing. Um, You have to be very specific when you go to your physician to ask for thyroid testing, because often they'll just test your TSH, which is just a measure of, you know, what your thyroid demand is. But sometimes your TSH can be totally normal. The reference range is extremely high and like extremely wide and all over the place. So you really want to be specific in asking for um, a free T3 and a free T4, as well as um, antibodies that could rule out any autoimmune um, conditions that you might have lying dormant. Um, So getting those T3, T4, and even a reverse T3, if your physician will order it, um, can be really helpful. Thyroid hormone is really important for ovulation. And if your thyroid's dysregulated, your ovulation might not um, occur as regularly, or your progesterone levels might not um, be high enough to sustain a pregnancy. So oftentimes in fertility clinics, women are put on thyroid if they have unexplained fertility, just to kind of rule out that cause because it's so common. Um, 
And if your physician won't order it or you don't want to go to your doctor for any reason, you can order those tests yourself with, you know, home kits like Everly Well. They have a really good thyroid panel that you can you can do. But then I encourage you to have a professional interpret them for you. Um, so thyroid's a big one. And then um, B12 um, and uh, folate are also a really important one. Um, B12 and folate, if those levels are low in the early first trimester, that increased the risk of um, pregnancy loss, as well as um, neural tube defects. So there are some women, even if they're eating a really healthy diet, they just, their bodies need for methylated B vitamins is really high. A lot of those women have certain, um, you know, genetic, genetic variants like MTHFR, which I'm sure lots of people have heard about in recent years. It's been a very popular thing to talk about, but, um, you know, those sorts of things can really increase your demand for, for methylated folate and methylated B12. And so getting those checked and then you know how to supplement. Okay. And that's what, um, so I have a double MTHFR, um, mutation or gene, gene mutation. Um, and that's something where you might want levels of B12 and folate that are higher than that's right. The normal range. Okay. So that would also be something I think working with a professional might be Mm-hmm. helpful. <laughs> and then for those women, you know, if you know you have that mutation, which you can also test for, if you really, that's like the next level testing. Um, those women, you really want to make sure you're getting the methylated vitamins, not the folic acid. So there's the two kinds of folate, right? There's folic acid and then there's methylated folate. And a lot of people think that they're the same, um, but they're not. Um, folic acid is a synthetic version of um, a vitamin folate, which you your body has to break down into work to utilize, whereas the methylated folate has already done this process of methylation for you that your body is a little bit sluggish at, and so it helps you actually get more into your system. Um, so women who have that double mutation especially really want to make sure that they just get the methylated um, vitamins rather than the folic acid because their body can't do that methylation on its own as easily. Yeah. And that's something I still see when I was getting the hospital care, they didn't talk about that difference at all. It was still just all folic acid. You need more, Mm -hmm. make sure you're getting enough folic acid. And I wasn't going to get into it with them. (laughs) No, they don't get it. (laughs) They don't get it. They think it's a bit of a pseudoscience, but it's actually really not. Um, Because you actually, you don't want that folic acid building up either. If you can't make that conversion. No, it can build up to really quite toxic levels. Um, and those toxic levels can be associated with certain breast cancers. So, you know, you you really want to be aware if if that is the case. Um, you know, if you have a, there, women who have a, a family history of things like spina bifida or any kind of neural tube defects or lip tie and tongue tie have even been associated with um, methylation issues. So if you know you have a family history of that, then I would be of high suspect for an MTHFR mutation and I would I would consider testing. Or, you know, if you can't afford testing, just buy methylated vitamins. They're good for everybody, you know, um, and that is an easy fix. And how do you recommend getting that test? The MTHFR test? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of different companies that will do it. Um, if you can get it ordered by your doctor, um, sometimes your insurance will cover it. So you can go to just a normal lab and have it done. Um, I did mine through 23andMe. Um, 
So if you, if you do a 23andMe, you can get your whole raw data and then you can really get a lot of information, um, which I actually find, I, I did my, I ran my raw data through a nutrigenomics um, uh, system. And that actually showed a bunch of other things that were more related to vitamin D and B12. And, you know, so if you're going to go as far as to do MTHFR testing, I would encourage you to just do the whole, the whole round of things. Um, and get it run through a piece of software that looks at a bunch of other SNPs that might help you supplement wisely during that fertile period and pregnancy and beyond. Like it's, it would just be great for your whole life. Um, that being said, it's a can of worms to open up. And uh, if you're the kind of person that's going to get really wrapped up in the minutia of it, <laughs> you know, um, maybe it's not a good idea. Um, and it's also a really good idea to get a professional to take a look at it too. Um, so you don't, you know, self-diagnose things because just because you have a certain SNP does not mean that you have the manifestation of that SNP. So just because your body has a harder time, um, absorbing B12, you actually might have really great B12 levels, um, just based on the other things that you're doing in your, in your lifestyle that affect how your genes work. So it's, it's not as cut and dry as, you know, you have this certain SNP in your genetic makeup and um, therefore it's expressed in that certain way. The way we live and the choices that we make and you know the food we put in our body and how we manage stress affect how those genes work. So it's important to look at the big picture and, and get someone to help you do that. Okay. Yeah, I did the 23andMe as well. It wasn't even for this. It was something my husband got me as a gift years <laughs> ago. And then I found out that you can kind of put it into a third party site and get get yeah. all that information about the SNPs. So, and I didn't do a whole lot with it, but it was at least enough before my first pregnancy to know I don't want to be taking folic acid. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't do much more with it than that, but I'm thankful. <laughs> I'm thankful I had that at least minimum knowledge. And then I had a functional medicine doctor later that did put it into some, a software to, to kind of look at the whole picture. Well, the cool thing is, is that you, that raw data is never going to change mm -hmm. and, um, you've always got it there and, you know, it can be really helpful if something happens in your health, because there's all this new information, you know, should you end up having to have a cancer diagnosis for whatever reason? Well, there's a lot of chemotherapy drugs that they will give certain people with certain genetic makeups, but not others. And so it saves some time, um, because those oncologists will then look at, you know, the t they take your raw that data and they would find a treatment plan designed for you. So it's it's kind of nice to have should you need it in the future. And um, I think they're finding out a lot of these things with all of the COVID-19 that's going on. Certain people with certain genetic makeups seem to um, be more prone to these cytokine storms than others, which is, I find really interesting. Um, but again, you can really get lost in the minutiae of it. So I encourage women to just, you know, take a prenatal, a really good high quality prenatal. And, you know, if they want to dive into it, go for it, but you don't need to. It's not a, it's not a necessity. Okay. Is there anything else people should look for in a prenatal? The big thing is the methylated vitamins and having a really good, um, a good mix of, um, the things that your body needs, particularly in early pregnancy. So the methylated bees would be number one, um, a mix of the variety of vitamin A's. So there's beta carotene, right? Which we get from like veggies, like carrots and things that are orange. Um, and then there's retinol, which is what we get from liver. 
it's nice to have a prenatal that mixes, has a mix of those two. Um, and those are a bit harder to find. Um, seeking health is the one that I really like, um, mostly because it comes in a chewable and it's easy to get in and uh, it has that nice mix. Um, the other important thing to look for in a prenatal would be choline. So choline is one of those things that we really need um, for cell division early in pregnancy. And then it also helps with uh, baby's brain and eye development as um, as your pregnancy progresses and also with breastfeeding too. Choline's hard to get a lot of in your diet. You can really only get it from egg yolks. Um, and so you have to be eating two to three egg yolks a day to get the minimum amount of choline. Um, and so getting that extra boost from a prenatal is, is really helpful if you don't do eggs every day or, you know, for whatever reason, if you're, you're not digesting your, your food well, if, you're, if your tummy's a little off for whatever reason, then getting it from prenatal is a good idea. Um, uh, so that would be a big one. Um, and then getting things like vitamin K1 and K2 are also really nice in a prenatal. Um, and then there's, you know, a few other things in a prenatal that I really like, like iodine would be a really nice one. Um, our thyroids are really challenged in pregnancy and in the postpartum and iodine can be really supportive of your thyroid. Um, so looking for something that has the iodine in it too is great. Um, and then some liver support herbs, which a lot of prenatals have, um, can be really great too, because your levels of hormones, particularly estrogen are sky high through the roof when you're pregnant and the way that our bodies break down and kind of metabolize estrogen in our systems is through our liver. So our, our liver really goes through a lot of stress when we're pregnant. And so something that will support our livers, um, can be really helpful. Um, see, I think seeking health also has a little bit of milk thistle in it that helps your support your liver too, but there's a lot of great prenatals out there and there's more and more being made every day. Um, so, you know, just encourage you to read the labels. And if you ever have questions about prenatals, I have women send me like screenshots of different prenatals all the time. And I'm happy to give my opinion on things as they kind of come out. But, you know, at the time we're recording this seeking health is definitely my favorite um, I'm not paid to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Wish you were, but you're not. <laughs> Wish I was, but I'm not. I, I just truly, really love their product. And and also their, their uh, prenatal is iron-free. Mm -hmm. So there is another one, I'm trying to remember the name of it, that has a very similar formula to Seeking Health, but it has iron in it. And for many women, iron can constipate you beyond belief um, when you're pregnant. So if, if that's you, then, you know, maybe uh, avoiding the iron in a prenatal, um, is a good thing. Um, and also, you know, you can kind of, if you do need extra iron in your prenatal, um, or you need to supplement with extra iron, it's easy to kind of adjust your dosage. If you're just taking it on the side, if it does cause you some digestive troubles rather than taking it every day. Yeah. And I do, I do the seeking health as well. I really like the, the protein powder, mm -hmm. um, cause it's just, easy. It's a little pricier, but for me, that's breakfast. So it's, um, yeah. but yeah, that was something you and I talked about during pregnancy was, um, I thought, well, I eat plenty of red meat. I'm fine with iron, like taking a prenatal without iron. And then I did become slightly anemic. Um, and what, can you say what you recommended in terms of the iron supplement? It's different for everybody. Like they're okay. um, seeking health makes a really good iron, but the, the one iron that I recommend hands down um, is 
I mean, and there's many different brands depending on where you live, but any iron that's a heme-based iron. So again, like vitamin A, there's two different kinds of iron. One is a plant-based and one is a heme-based, which comes from um, some sort of blood from some sort of animal. Sometimes it's pig, sometimes it's cow. Um, But the heme-based iron is hands down way more um, readily absorbed by your body and will bring up your hemoglobin much faster with much less side effects. So, um, you know, where you might need 70 milligrams, 100 milligrams of um, of non-heme-based iron. So that would be something that you might read on a label that would say, you know, ferrous glycinate or, you know, um, ferrous fumarate. All of those sorts of um, eights are all non-heme-based iron. So you might need 100 milligrams of that. Um, and you might have terrible digestive problems from that, whereas you would need, you know, 20 milligrams of a heme-based iron. And, and it goes right into your system, brings your hemoglobin up really fast, and um, you feel better, quicker. Um, heme-based iron is a little bit more expensive too, but again, you need a lot less of it. Um, and you don't need it for as long. So I encourage people to look for a heme-based iron. And again, you might have to look around depending on where you live. I know in Canada, New Roots makes a really good heme-based iron. Um, and then you can buy it over the counter in the pharmacy. Um, they often have a heme-based iron there. You just have to ask the pharmacist. Okay. Yeah. And I think that was something that I definitely noticed. I was fatigued and mm-hmm. felt a lot better after a few weeks of supplementing. So and that was you just know, some women, a- you could have the best diet in the world and you, you know, your iron needs when you're pregnant are just higher and, uh, that's cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I encourage people to eat red meat a lot more often, um, when they're, when they're pregnant, if they can. Um, and by more often, I mean, you know, multiple times in a week. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think I was doing that, but it was still low. And then, yeah, yeah I like, I like that you said that about the choline, cause we've talked about that. It's hard to get from your diet and iodine's really hard to get from diet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so takes a lot of work to get iodine from your diet unless you're doing iodized salt um, which I most people end up doing sea salt mm-hmm. um, a quick way to add more into your diet is by getting like the sea salt with kelp in it that has a little bit more iodine but really to get it a, a good therapeutic dose you have to get it from a good quality multi as well as what you're getting um, from your diet when you're when you're pregnant just because your needs are so high yeah because it's really just like sea seaweed and kelp and mm-hmm. <laughs> not something we're eating a ton of usually no and when we're pregnant you know I think we have to give ourselves some grace you know some people can maintain a totally healthy diet whereas others not so much like you know I have talked about nutrition and pregnancy till I'm blue in the face and my pregnancy diet was nothing like what I what I planned on it being and at first I felt really terrible about it. And I was like, how is this possible? How am I living on gluten-free bagels right now? Like, this is awful. But at the end of the day, I had to eat something and I didn't have a choice. <laughs> like I truly did not have a choice. Um, but that's when you, you know, you lean on the fact that you had a really great diet beforehand and you're taking a good prenatal and you just move on. I had gluten-free bagels too, and I'm into the, the pregnancy <laughs> nutrition, but yeah, it was around week eight where it's just like, I just need to make sure I'm eating. <laughs> yeah. You just got to go with it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, yeah, speaking of how, what about blood sugar in pregnancy? So there's a lot oh, with yeah. that around gestational diabetes and, um, potentially if you're eating more carbohydrate or yeah. Can we just talk about that? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, gestational diabetes is becoming, it seems like more and more common, even in healthy populations. Um, you know, back when I started practicing, it was certain ethnicities that we'd see it more often in. But now it's it's becoming prevalent kind of across the board, which is, I find really interesting. Um, so gestational diabetes, just as a background, is not True, true diabetes. Um, it can mean that a woman might be predisposed to blood sugar issues later in life, but it's essentially an exaggeration of the body's natural response in pregnancy. So when we become pregnant, sometime around the second trimester, we all become a little bit more insulin resistant, which means that our blood sugars naturally are a little bit higher. And that is for a good reason. It's to feed our growing baby. Um, blood sh- our blood sugar is higher so that it cro- um, our blood the sugars in our blood cross the placenta and feed the baby. And, and that's how we grow our kids. But in some women, that response is just exaggerated. Um, and it becomes a problem because it can cause all sorts of complications with pregnancy. From high blood pressure to, you know, growing babies that are too big, which are therefore harder to come out, um, as well as our babies, once they're born, have a hard time controlling their blood sugar too. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty serious problem. Um, but there's lots of things you can do in terms of your diet um, to help control blood sugars. So most women, once they have the diagnosis of gestational diabetes, can control that with diet. Um, it's quite rare that a woman needs insulin in, unless she's actually like truly sick with um, gestational diabetes. And likely she has some other risk factors and predisposed herself to diabetes later. But, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to manage it. And every woman is different. This is what I'm learning more and more. I used to recommend across the board, kind of a lower carb diet, not a no carb diet, not a keto diet, but a lower carb diet. Um, And for most women that really helps. So you have more protein, which is going to help balance your blood sugar. You have more fats, which helps balance your blood sugar and less of the spikes that are caused by when we eat glucose. Um, But for some women, they still need like a fair amount of carbs. So Sometimes we have to change that general recommendation and add in more carbs for certain women. Like some women, they really actually don't do well on that lower carb approach and they do well more on a kind of a lower glycemic index diet where they're still getting lots of carbohydrates, but the glycemic index of their carbohydrates is less. So those are kind of the two main approaches that I take. Either we'll start women on a lower carb diet. So by lower carb, I usually start them off, you know, somewhere around 150 grams of carbohydrates a day and see what they do there. And if that's not working, um, and we drop it down a little bit, and if that's still not working, then we look at the glycemic index and we actually raise their carbs. And that usually solves the problem. Um, Lily Nichols has a great starting book called Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And I I encourage women to, to get that book and have a good read. She explains a lot about what causes gestational diabetes and how to treat it. Um, and so that that kind of her diet that she recommends there is usually where I start with. But again, sometimes that doesn't work and we change our approach. Um, Do you recommend doing any kind of monitoring? Yeah, I, I mean, if a woman has had a true gestational diabetes diagnosis, then she should be checking her blood sugars through the day um, until she gets a handle on what foods you know cause what things. Like, I don't think you need to check throughout your pregnancy, unless your blood sugars have been wildly uncontrolled. But if you have got a handle on it and you are, have found a diet that's working um, and your blood sugars have been maintained for two weeks, then I tell people, you know, check intermittently, but you don't have to be as religious about it anymore because um, it can really drive you nuts. 
Yeah, I did. I chose to do that instead of the test just because mm-hmm. I kind of wanted the information. Um, because my understanding is certain foods can really cause a blood sugar spike, even if you don't have gestational diabetes and you're, mm-hmm. you're more prone to that in pregnancy. So you might mm-hmm. want that information with a few different meals. Um, totally. I did the same thing. I didn't do the gestational diabetes test and uh, I just ch- checked my blood sugar for a few weeks kind of here and there. And yeah, it was interesting what you find out about your body and how it changes. Like for me, I could eat a cookie and I would have no problem. I would eat a piece of chocolate cake with frosting on it and I would have no problem. I would have a sushi roll and my blood sugar would go through the roof. I'm the same white rice really, really spikes it. (laughs) It's like, wow, crazy. And um, yeah. And I wondered why I felt so crummy after I ate sushi and it's like, okay, well, there it is. That's the information. Um, So that can be interesting to do, even if you don't have a gestational diabetes diagnosis, just kind of know what your body is, is doing helps you make better dietary choices where you're just going to feel better too. You know, your energy is going to be more stable and your mood might be more stable. Um, I also found that my fasting blood sugar was really affected by my sleep quality and my stress levels. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to remember that it's not just what we eat that affects our blood sugar. It's also stress. Cortisol really affects blood sugar levels. Um, so it's not just managing our diet. It's also managing our lifestyle and um, looking at that big picture again, it can be really crucial when you're looking at um, not only the treatment of diabetes, but just the how, feeling well when you're pregnant and managing fatigue and blood sugar imbalance, which is pretty common. Yes. We, we just did a postpartum episode and we were talking about how it's kind of cyclical. Like you don't even mm-hmm. know where it's starting, the sleep issues or the blood sugar, because they can cause each other. Like for sleep, you crave sugar. And if you're eating a lot of sugar, your blood sugar dips in the night. And I I love that you mentioned that because it's, it's all so related. And those, those problems are both so common in pregnancy and postpartum, like sleep issues, um, totally blood sugar issues. Yeah. And I think for fertility too, you know, a lot of women, you know, they come to me and they want to know what should I eat to like help my ovulate every month. I'm not ovulating every month. And I, I know it's my diet. Well, actually it's probably more your lifestyle. It's probably more stress levels that are affecting all of those hormones, cortisol being one of them that is affecting your ovulation more so than your diet. And it's all, it's all the big picture of how we live as humans. Like we're this giant organism that is sensitive to all these different inputs. Stress is an input, diet's an input. And if you neglect one, essentially the other is going to be affected and the whole organism is going to be affected. Yeah. And that's some, that's somewhere I keep coming. Like as I'm looking at the postpartum stuff more, I'm like, well, to have good blood sugar postpartum, you need good blood sugar in pregnancy. And really mm-hmm. these are things that again, ideally with all this foresight, you're fixing your sleep and your blood sugar before you get pregnant. (laughs) Totally. And you're establishing good habits too. One of the things that I really have said for many years for postpartum women is to make sure that you go for a walk or move your body in some way every day. And being a postpartum woman, I've really noticed the difference. Like if I've, even if I've had a really crappy night of sleep, if I go for a good walk, I feel like I don't have those sugar cravings as much anymore. You know, a good gentle walk will reduce your cortisol and then it helps me sleep better the next night. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of like, you know, doing other things to help your blood sugars balance too. 
Yeah, I like that though. I I really like walks for stress relief. Like I do an audiobook and um can zone out a little. It's harder now with yeah. two kids. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> but can, yeah, can we talk a little bit more about sleep, like troubleshooting sleep? Because I feel like that's something I hear a ton during pregnancy. Oh, yeah. Um, I think definitely later on, but also early, like probably first and third trimester, I've heard a lot of people with sleep issues. Yeah, it happens. Um, I would say first and third for sure. Second, you get this little bit of a grace period. Some of us do, some of us don't. But um, first trimester, it's usually caused by your hormone levels spiking, you know, going from zero to 60. Some women are really affected by that. That can be a bit harder to manage. Um, if you are taking an anti-nauseant like that diclectin that has some unisom in it, and that usually will solve your problem right then and there. So. Um, and same for the third trimester, nausea can return too. So if you're, again, taking some medication to help you manage your nausea, you're often managing your sleep as well. Um, so that's one thing that can help is like just a simple over-the-counter Unisom or Benadryl. Um, it's not the, you know, the granola crunchy answer, but it works <laughs> and, and it is safe to take um, in small doses. Um, so that's one thing you can try if you're desperate. But, you know, sleep hygiene, again, is like a really important thing. And I know people have probably heard about it um, a lot, but, you know, establishing a really good bedtime routine. So for me, that usually looked like if I was having a, a period of insomnia, I would make sure I would take a, a hot shower, a hot bath before I got into bed. That simple cooling effect from your body from when it goes from hot to cool really tells your body it's time to relax and it helps your body fall asleep. So um, I would take a bath and usually like I'm not on my phone or any devices or I don't have the TV or music going when I'm in the bath or in the shower. And so that, you know, establishing that time where you're not having any blue light exposure, you're not having any input of information um, can help calm down your mind, which can be racing, particularly in the first and third trimester when you're going through all these big life changes. Um, so that that's a big thing too, right? Put your phones away turn off the computer, turn off the TV, and just try to have some quiet time. Um, I really got in the routine of doing like a little bit of a mindfulness practice before bed, even if it's just five minutes. Um, 20 minutes is pretty optimal, but even if it's just five minutes, um, however that looks for you, there's certain apps that can really help. One that's made for your pregnancy and postpartum and um, preconception is called Expectful. And um, it has some wonderful little meditation, um, scripts, and you can adjust the time based on how much time you have to commit to it. And that can be really helpful too. So those three things I, I would say everybody should be doing, um, whether you're pregnant or not, yeah, and that can help with sleep. Um, and then the Unisom, some women find that, um, extra magnesium can help before bed, particularly if they're having problems with restless legs, which can keep a lot of us awake. Um, you can get magnesium in a bunch of different ways. A lot of women take natural calm. That seems to do the trick, particularly for restless legs. Um, and it can also help you if you're a little bit constipated too. Um, it comes in a hot drink or in um, like a gummy format if you're feeling more nauseous. I know I couldn't do the hot drink when I was, um, when I was really nauseous because it was just too acidic, but the gummies I could get down, no problem. So that's an option. Um, it can help your muscles relax too. And then, you know, the biggest thing with pregnancy insomnia is sometimes there's just nothing that's going to help. 
<laughs> and, and accepting that, right? And oftentimes it's the anxiety around it and the like frustration is like, why am I not sleeping? What can I do to fix this? But sometimes, particularly in the third trimester, it just is what it is. And as much as nobody likes to hear that, it, it's true. And you can try all the things and nothing works and accepting it and just letting your body relax into that acceptance of where you're at and knowing that it's not going to last forever um, can help. So, you know, as my grandmother used to tell me, even if you're lying in bed, relaxed with your eyes closed, you're still getting rest. And so when insomnia hits, just take solace in that. And sometimes, you know, just lie in bed with your eyes closed and your body relaxed with a calm mind and, and ride it out. And uh, for me, I had terrible insomnia in my third trimester and that's what I had to result to. And it actually, I felt rather rested and I'd wake up in the morning and be able to get on with my day. Um, and then again, naps is pretty key. If you can nap or even just lie down with your eyes closed during the day, that can help get you through those troubled times. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, I did start working from home in my third trimester and that was really it. So I could use my lunchtime to lay down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was huge. I, I think cause you're not necessarily, I, I slept okay, but even just like sleeping on your side instead of your back, or there's a lot of different things that are affected. And then, like we said, the blood sugar, um, Sometimes having a snack in the middle of the night can help too. I know like if I was awake and I couldn't fall back to sleep, um, having a little snack can really like get you back to sleep. Yeah. And I think that was, that was really big for me in my first pregnancy. I think I had more blood sugar issues back then and I did need to eat in the middle of the night too to kind of reset. It was like, all right, pee, water, and have a snack. snack. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. And be mindful. Like I I tell women to usually have a little bit of carbohydrate as a snack. If you snack on something that's like just pure protein based that can keep you up at night. So have some carbohydrate, have some fat. Um, for me, it was always like a piece of toast with some peanut butter on it. And I would be back asleep or like a little bowl of cereal or a bowl of oats that would do the trick for me, but you know, just finding what works for you is, is good. And then, so what about something like heartburn? That's another one I hear a lot. Third trimester. Do you have recommendations for that? Yeah, that's, it's hard because oftentimes in the third trimester, it's, it's mechanical, right? Like it's not that there's anything wrong with you or your diet. It's like, there's just no space and your baby is pushing the acid out of your stomach. Um, and because your progesterone levels are so high, your, your esophageal sphincter is, is soft and weak. So it's not holding that acid down. So, you know, some people really try all sorts of things with teas and diet and, you know, milk seems to help a lot of people. If you can do milk, um, avoiding, you know, eating big meals at the end of the day and staying um, upright for sleep seems to be a big thing. So really propping yourself up with pillows um, can help. Um, A lot of women do do Tums and that's totally fine. Don't feel bad about doing the Tums. Um, For me, I had a little bit of heartburn and I ended up, I tried everything. Like I did upright, I avoided um, certain food, like spicy foods or fatty foods um, peppermint tea can really be a triggering for some women. It can help some women, but it could also make it a whole heck of a lot worse for some women. Um, I avoided any acidic food like tomatoes and stuff like that. Nothing really worked. And at the end of the day, the thing that worked was four pillows, 
and some Gaviscon. <laughs> and, and so, you know, don't feel bad about taking those over the counter things if you need them. Um, if you've tried everything else and it's keeping you awake um, and, and you're just like kind of beside yourself, just kind of go for the Gaviscon for a week and see what happens. And, and it, for me, it was like a game changer. Um, and all those things are safe to take in the third trimester. So yeah, don't feel bad about it. I love this perspective that you're not trying to be a purist about it. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, you can be a purist, you try all the purest things, but at yeah. the end of the day, sometimes they don't work. And you're like, and then, you know, you, you're either suffering or you're taking the over the counter things that are proven to be safe and you feel crappy about it. And you, you, there's this like guilt cycle. And then, you know, you can get into the whole conversation of mom guilt and it starts right from there. And it's like, okay, just accept that this is just a season. It's not forever. And, you know, gosh, make yourself feel better. Um, you don't have to suffer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I, the last question I had was around swelling. Is there, that's obviously something we hear about a lot in the third trimester. Is there anything that can be done about that? Swelling is, yeah, that's a tricky one. Like you, you want to make sure you're ruling out any forms of, um, you know, pathology, making sure that your blood pressure is healthy and your doctor is still happy with, um, you know, ruling out things like pregnancy induced hypertension that you definitely don't want. Um, but if your swelling is just normal into pregnancy swelling, the best thing you could possibly do would be to get in the water. Um, the water could mean getting in the bath, particularly with a little bit of Epsom salts that can really help, um, increase lymph and fluid return from your feet back up to your torso. Um, if you can't get in the bath or if you feel like your bath's not deep enough or you don't have a bathtub, getting in a swimming pool, which might be the last thing on earth you want to do, um, is put on a bathing suit and get in the pool. But if you can get in the pool, that really helps, um, link circulate fluid throughout your body and get rid of the swelling in your lower limbs. Um, sitting on your back, I found for me, like, you know, we were always told in midwifery school to like get women to sit with legs up the wall and with their, you know, and, and put a wedge under the hips so that they're not on their back. For me, I couldn't do that. I would get really nauseous and dizzy and even with the wedge. So you could try that, um, for short periods of time, but by far for what, what we're, works for most women is, is water-based. So bathtub or, or pool. Um, and if you're looking for activities like joining like a aqua fit or an aqua aerobics class is actually really wonderful in the third trimester. It gets you working, gets you moving, and it pretty much eliminates your, your swelling. And I think most women notice a huge difference when they get out of the pool, like swelling is gone and that effect can last for 24 to 48 hours. So, um, I encourage you to do that, but, you know, aside from that, um, having the baby is really the only way to get rid of all of the edema. <laughs> it's usually it's very effective to most things. <laughs> but, <laughs> and then, and then you get new problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just kidding. It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, can you tell us about baby banking and beyond? Yeah, so that is a, it is a program we have been gestating for a very long time. Um, currently, the, pro, the pieces of the program that are live are the fertility and hormones section, which is really wonderful. If you're a woman who is in your childbearing years and you're struggling with 
hormone balance at all. So even if you're not planning on becoming pregnant, um, any sort of hormone issues from thyroid to adrenal fatigue to lack of a period to estrogen dominance, it's all kind of covered in there. Um, and then we have um, the core four, which is kind of the core of all of our program. And that's um, a series of recommendations that have been researched until we were both kind of blue in the face and we're updating as research changes. Um, Liz and I have both worked on that for a lot of years, but that's live as well. And that can be wonderful um, incorporating in the preconception time, but also through pregnancy and postpartum, all of those series of dietary and supplement and lifestyle recommendations, they all hold true um, during those times. So we look at things like, you know, what you should be eating, how you should build your plate, to what supplements you should be taking, um, to how to manage sleep and stress, which is a huge piece, um, to you know how to have some functional movement patterns when you're pregnant and postpartum, um, and yeah, so it's it's quite comprehensive, um, and I really I loved it, and I used it through preconception and and um, pregnancy and in the postpartum. Um, I used it so well, I got pregnant without even trying. After 10 years of infertility, I followed my own advice and got pregnant with an IUD at the age of 40. Um, so I can attest to the fact that it works. <laughs> even when you're not trying for it to work, it works. Um, but it does. It was, you know, especially the hormones and fertility section, that was my baby. And um, I struggled with hormone imbalance for so many years. And I put all of the information that I learned into that program. and. Um, yeah, it really works. It's worked for me and it's worked for a lot of other women. Um, the feedback that we've gotten from it so far is, you know, 90% of women who have done the program have gotten pregnant. And I can't say that that will happen for you or for, you know, anyone else, but most people that have, um, have done it have had great success with it. Um, and it's very supportive and safe to take if you're, if you're doing other fertility treatments as well. So um, it's complementary to all sorts of different things. And then we do have the first trimester of pregnancy section that's live too. And um, in the next few months, we should have all of the pregnancy section uh, and birth section ready to go. Um, and then the postpartum section is soon to follow. So it, it's all there. Yeah, this is something that wasn't around for my first pregnancy and I had it. I've been following this forever and it, yeah, it was, it's such a great resource and um yeah, it's it's a good companion to kind of just have a place to go for all of your questions rather than just Googling something where you hear a million different, <laughs> different yeah. answers to the same problem. You guys kind of present the research and um, give your thoughts without this. Uh, there just isn't this energy of around, here's what you have to do, you know. Totally. Yeah, and it's not based on you know, we're not telling you what to do and we're not, you know, judging choices. We're just giving information. And I think that's how we have to empower our moms throughout pregnancy, fertility, postpartum, um, and just being a mom, you know, everybody's choices are going to be different and that's cool, you know, and, and supporting each other's choices where my choice might be different from your choice. And that's totally fine. Um, just as long as it's a choice that's made with good information you know, everybody is a little bit different. And so um, we really try to in, in empower women to make those choices that are right for themselves and their families and, and ask questions and be curious and, you know, 
if you need more information, ask for it. And we're, we're happy to help um, guide you in the right direction in terms of what we were aware of in terms of new research and stuff like that. And, and if, you know, the section that you need is not available at the time or you have more questions, I encourage women to just reach out to me. I am still, I'm still around and I'm happy to answer questions here and there. Um, I will be going back to clinical practice in the fall. Um, so I won't have as much time for nutrition clients and just those, the virtual midwife clients, but um, I do still have spaces available for, for those women that want a little bit of extra support. I'm always happy to do that. It uh, brings a lot of joy to my life to do that work. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, like I said, we worked together um, more, more extensively in my first pregnancy, but in both of my pregnancies where um, it was a huge help to just have those calls and check in with, here's what I'm feeling. How might we tweak things? And I think, like you said, this approach to, we're not going to judge you for doing something a little different, like do what works. I think it's so important for women to have that kind of support, not the judging guilt kind of cycle of support. Totally. (laughs) Uh, Like, here's what you have to do. And if you don't do it, you failed and you deserve every bad symptom you have, you know. (laughs) Totally. It's, it it adds stress to our lives when we really don't need any more stress at all. And, and as parents, I think it makes us more relaxed parents when we can just kind of roll with it and, you know, and not, not be so laser beam focused on a certain dogma and the way things have to be, because as you know, once you have kids, the way you think things have to be is not necessarily the way that they're going to be because there's far too many factors, uh, including, you know, how little people develop and grow. Um, and we have to take them into account too, and their needs and their needs might be different than even our first child. And we might make different decisions for one child versus the other child. Um, just as an example, but I, I really think that the kind of approach of being flexible, non-judgmental, and accepting where you're at at any given time, knowing that it's fluid and it can change is a, is a really great way to approach our childbearing years as women and, and maintain our sanity. That's key. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's like, there are there is so much good information out there and it's like, okay, if you can incorporate this do it. It, it, We don't want to not give the information because of being afraid of overwhelming somebody, but it's also Mm -hmm. like, if this overwhelms you just ignore it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Most of the time it's going to be okay. Right. 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 Yeah. And going through this, like we're trying to make this research source for postpartum, like recipes, things like that, that you can freeze, freeze ahead. And it's like, we're trying to make it easy, but don't worry if you don't get as much bone broth as, yeah. <laughs> as we say you might, you know, if you can do it, it's awesome. But if you can't, that's cool too. You'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You'll be okay. Yeah, exactly. So, well, is there anything else you wanted to share? I don't, I don't think so. I think we covered, we covered most of it, but um, yeah, it was lovely to chat with you. Yeah, this was so good. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate it. And I encourage anybody wanting more information to check out your program and we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. So cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Email us your questions at nourished and nurturing at gmail.com and find us on Instagram at nourished and nurturing. You can find more from me, Marissa, at confidentlybalanced.com. And you can find more from me, Michelle, on Instagram at Michelle Taggy. 
Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you like what you heard and share it with a friend. We look forward to talking to you next week.